to another episode of Big Talk. I'm your guest host, Alex Ashkin, and I am joined here tonight with the legendary Bloomington educator, entertainer, coach, and host of WFHB's Fast and Bulbous, the one, the only Steve Philbeck. Steve, how are you doing this evening? Well, other than being a little embarrassed right now, Alex, I'm doing really well. Thank you. Well, it's my goal to get you smiling. And if that takes a little bit of embarrassment, it's it's a cost I'm worth paying. You're one of our hosts of a late night show, Fast and Bulbous, here on WFHB. 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Thursday nights, Friday mornings. Being in Bloomington and knowing so many people from so many different sort of facets of my life, um, they don't always overlap. And so a lot of people may know this part of my life, but not know something else that I do or did. So it's this is kind of fun because you've done your homework here, it seems. <laughs> That's what hopefully makes this a fun interview. So let's dig in. First things first, we got to touch on Bloomington High School North. You worked as an educator, a social studies teacher at North from starting in about 1996, 97. Exactly right. Uh, so served for about 24 years, 25 years. Unfortunately, you had to retire uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. I want to put you on the spot a little bit. So what do you think of when you think of the Cougars? In general? Yeah, free association. Uh, absolutely love the Cougars. I love my school. Uh, it's still my school. It's always going to be my school, you know, no matter what happens there. It's, I have so many incredibly great, great, great memories. There. How about the Dwayneys or perhaps uh, someone like Jared Jeffries? Okay. Well, we'll start with the Dwayneys, you know, ultimate respect for the entire Dwayne family. Uh, beginning um, with Wall, the father of the Duaneys. Um, absolutely an amazing family. They came to me when I was working at the boys club and uh, Duaney was 12. Queth would have been maybe eight at that time, maybe seven. Um, and they wanted to learn basketball in the United States and they had just gotten here. Not knowing exactly what to expect, I put Duaney on a team with my dear friend, Andrew Beckman, who was a volunteer coach for us at the club at that time. And he was the perfect guy uh, for Duaney. Anyway, I could go on and on about the, the Duaneys and about um, their cousin, Gare, who is a well-known author and actor by now. And uh, they are just incredible people. I, I can't go on enough about the Duaneys. Now, get to the Jeffries. Uh, funny thing, you know, Jared, when he was a little kid, he was about 12. And my son, uh, Nick, was on his brother's basketball team, youth basketball team. So Jared and I... We go off to the side and shoot baskets and stuff. And he'd say, coach, I'm going to be a point guard for your team someday. And I'm going to be in the NBA. And uh, I said, well, you're kind of tall for a point guard. He says, yeah, but I'm working hard at it. So snap forward a few years. I'm coaching at North. Here comes Jared. And indeed, he's got point guard skills. And he's about six and nine. And uh, most of you know the rest of the story if you follow basketball at all. On to uh, the career at uh, IU. 
and a uh, final game appearance. Yep. And then a, a good, solid NBA career. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They're, uh, the parents of the Jeffrey's dad is Tom and Cecilia, the mom, um, among the finest people I, I know in my life. How about a few of the various educators we have? Uh, someone like Jeff Aiken. Jeff Aiken is the yep. most honest human being <laughs> I ever met in my life. I'm very serious about that. Uh, he's a wonderful teacher and a better person. You actually got pretty like started in education a little later than the average person. You started around the age of 40. Yep. Um, and that was after ha having worked at Boys and Girls Club and uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters. But you had gone to school for secondary education. Not initially. Initially, I, my first degree was in urban planning and administration. And I did, a, uh, I did an internship with the city of Bloomington. And at the end of the internship, uh, Pat Patterson and Betty Merriman, I remember them so well, they uh, said, hey, you should apply for a job here. And I said, are you kidding? I've seen what you guys put up with. There's no way I want this job. So I went into uh, goofing around and working in record stores and stuff for a while. Yeah, I started at Karma, and uh, they had the original Karma store, and they wanted to open a used and cutout store in the basement that they called Cheap Sellers. So they hired me to run that, which was really a joy. Was that where you really got your opportunity to dive into crates of vinyl and kind of go wild with your music taste? My brother Russ is six years older than me, and growing up, he was really into like the cool stuff that other kids his age were into, which would have put him in sort of a beatnik-y sort of time. Um, so we watched Dobie Gillis, and um, he listened to uh, surf music when it started up. And he was also a trumpeter and was very seriously into jazz. And so my um, sort of introduction to music was sort of a combination of his love of jazz and surf music and my mom's kind of love uh, certain like swing type. Like my mom's favorite song was Satin Doll by Duke Ellington. So she played music around the house, and then the Beatles came. I'm a nine-year-old when the Beatles came. So that sort of confluence of all of those things just, like, smacked me over the head, and off I went. But, yeah, really, like, in terms of really collecting records, which I'm a maniac about, um, that really started when I got a paper out when I was 12, to be honest with you. And I just, that's what I do with my money. That's very evident in terms of your music selection on WFHB. If you look it up online, I think we, we describe it as an eclectic mix, which is the only appropriate way to describe it, especially when you're going to jump around from things like The Temptations to Kiss to Bob Seger. <laughs> and, oh, oh, wow. And now I'm just seeing uh, the personal wall of vinyl. <laughs> that, two walls of vinyl. I just showed him pictures of my record collection for those of you who don't have visuals on this, which is none of you. <laughs> Do you have like any creme de la creme crown jewels albums that you're proud of having? You know, it's weird because um, I've always been into it for the music more than the sort of collection idea, you know. I, I mean, I just started buying music when I was a kid and I kept it all because I loved it all. And then over time, it became this thing of value to people. Today, you know, I have, like, I guess, I don't know, there's a record I really love, but I would never part with. I was just talking with this to the folks up at the Landlock Music the other day. 
it's a record out of Cincinnati by a band called The Sacred Mushroom, which is a really highly sought after collector's item. But to me, it's just something I had bought when I was 13 or 14 that I just love, you know. So I, I just, I, I have a hard time viewing it as valuable. Music is more valuable than the object that it's on. For mine, I think the coolest find I found was the first U.S. pressing of uh, Autobahn by Kraftwerk. Absolute seminal electronica album. But the, the coolest record, which isn't even vinyl, is an old copy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest on Laserdisc. <laughs> <laughs> I probably have so many like ridiculously valuable records stashed away. But, you know, here's something, too, by the way, and, you know, this is not an advertisement, people, but I have been, uh, as I've gotten older, I've been selling a lot of vinyl off, you know, because I don't want to, quote, burden people with having to deal with that later, you know, yeah. and I also don't want them to get shortchanged. And so, you know, I have been um, kind of putting it out there a little bit, and, uh, looking at the possibility of even opening a small shop to have so many, like, crazy things, board games, and like I collect everything, books, board games, movies, records, CDs, and my house is a horrible mess. You were kind of known for having a bit of a unique teaching style. Even as a student at North, I think I knew about you probably by the time I was in seventh grade in middle school because of my older sister talking about Phil Beck's Friday flicks and stuff like that going on. You always seem to be very inviting, very kind of a place of refuge for your students. Was that always sort of the case in your 25 years of teaching? You know, as, a, as I'm thinking of it right now, I, I think back to the first time I really sort of really cared about a student um, was when I was a little kid and I was I grew up in a in a neighborhood that was eh, lower middle to lower class there were a lot of interesting kids around the school and being a student who was more capable than most others in my classroom uh, the teacher often would tell me um, you know you go and teach George what you can about reading and so I had a, you know, we had a disabled kid in our class. Uh, well, he was one of them, but sort of my job was to teach George. And that was kind of weird. You know, when I look back on it now, it's really just wrong. But, you know, at that time, um, I felt a sense of responsibility to George in a greater sense than just teaching him run, dick, run, see, dick, run. Right. It was, you know, it was more like George was somebody who was way different from what I sort of recognized as normal at that time. Uh, it broke my heart in a lot of ways, you know, and then I lived in a mixed neighborhood and I saw African-American people who were mistreated. And that also was something that really was heartbreaking to me, you know, because these were my friends. And then I, you know, they would tell me stories when I became an adult. I think that's what chased me away from the idea of being an urban planner. You know, I really was enjoying my volunteer work with kids at the boys club and the boys club offered me an opportunity to work there. And so I jumped on it in terms of my classroom. Yeah. I wanted it to be a welcoming place. I wanted all the weirdos and freaks and uh, the kids who felt like they didn't belong uh, to feel comfortable in one place in the school. If they didn't anywhere, I wanted them to feel like they could come to my room and just be themselves. It wasn't a big thing. 
Um, it was just like, be there, you know, just like be there. I'm not going to treat you differently. I'm not going to treat you in any other way. It's just that you can just be part of the crowd. You can be part of the crew, you know. I always said the first day of every class, you know, what I want room 401 to be the best part of your day. Every time you come in here, I want this to be a place where you can come. You can say, whoo, I can finally be me here for an hour and a half. Teachers, if you're listening and you're struggling with classroom management and those kind of things, please, 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 like try to relax and just like let it flow. Be yourself. Get to know the kids a little bit. Show your own like it's okay to say I don't know in this world, people. It is okay. Just I don't know. Sometimes you know, hey, can you look that up for me? I'll give you five extra points. But don't uh, just don't close yourself off to the possibilities. And so I appreciate that sentiment, not only because you wanting to try and impart things to others, but because that seems to always be a constant theme throughout your work. Just today is the birthday of Kenny Howard, who is the current head of the Bloomington North English Department and a wonderful young educator who I know you have had a huge role in shaping their professional career. What does it mean to you to be able to build those bonds with the younger educators? Wow, this is like, I, I, I could talk about this for hours. There's a lot of things that happen in schools that I cringe a little bit. You know, one of those is people trying to over-intellectualize the material. Uh, you can be approachable and you can be understandable. You don't always have to like geek out to the kids, right? And I know so many teachers who like, they feel like, well, I have to, you know, they have to see that I know this material. Yeah, they can see you know it and you can talk to them like regular people, like you and I are right now, Alex, you know, I, you and I have talked many times over our histories and mm-hmm. hopefully you've never felt like I was being an authoritarian or even really an authority, you know, because I'm not, I'm just a person who knows things that maybe you don't know. And we're going to, we're going to share that. Uh, Kenny Howard was, um, he was a young teacher who he was uh, escorting another student as a peer who needed a one-on-one and uh, he'd sit in my classroom, you know, and I thought, man, this guy's really cool. He's taking it all in. Well, then he started to come back to my classroom without his his peer. And he would just sit in the back. And I thought, this is kind of weird. What's he doing here? And one day I said, Kenny, why are you? He said, well, I just love to learn things, you know. And that's who he is as a person, you know. And um, I immediately thought, okay, this guy, this guy is observant and he's really taking it all in. I did Kenny and Justina's wedding this summer, by the way. Yeah, actually, that was literally going to be the next point. A lot of the bonds that you've made with these folks has been an almost family-like bond. Well, it was wonderful. And they even, you know, I said, hey, look, I probably won't do this like in a traditional way. And they were like, that's why we want you to do it. So. It was perfect. It was great. Yeah. Speaking with another student of yours, J.D. Robinson, class of 2009. Robertson. Robertson, thank you. He always sort of mentioned, you know, you were always willing to talk movies, film, TV, music, basically at any given time, as long as you could kind of relate it to something. Why do you think that 
your approach to marrying a bit of media to create context might have been a more approachable means of like connecting with kids, especially as a history teacher. Yeah, well, history lends itself very well to all kinds of media. Uh, whether that's, you know, music or film or photographs or whatever it is, you know, we've always used all of those things, you know, paintings, uh, historical records, documents, diaries. I mean, there's so many different, it's my first lesson in one of my classes is let's list on the board all the ways we learn about things we don't know and then start to criticize those and see what's the best, right? And it's really a fascinating exercise for the kids because they almost always come down to the same answers, you know. Um, they like first person. They don't like certain things where you can crop things, right, or change things. But anyway, uh, I think it's fun for them. I think it makes the material more accessible. If you can access the story through a song or through a relatable film, it stays with you a little better. Just like you and I, you know, we, we may not remember something we read in a textbook, which is why, by the way, I removed textbooks from my classes probably 12 years before I retired, because nobody likes textbooks. They're boring. And they could be written like novels and be totally historically accurate and be interesting to kids. And so I tried to find a way to do that in another way, you know, is to show them through personal examples because I'm old or show them through zeitgeist, I guess. There was this moment in time when it was there were there were these things, you know, it wasn't just one dimensional. It wasn't just what you wrote in a book or read in a book. It was like all these other things are going on at the same time. And you got to try to understand how people felt, not just what they did. Another big point of that is your ethnic studies classes. In my conversation with JD, he sort of implied that there was almost like a bit of a subversive element to that or something kind of unusual and even sort of implied that it in a way might tie to more modern discussions of like critical race theory what a lot of people refer to as crt do you think that might be accurate description even if it's perhaps a little broad here's the thing like when the word when words like subversive are used uh, i'm not sure what they really mean like truth is what i told if that sounds subversive that's not my that's not my twist on it you know like i'm saying this is what happened you if you see it as a subversive thing that i mentioned that there's something wrong with the society in which you live it is not that i'm teaching it subversively because i'll tell you every single thing i ever taught kids you know that's not there's nothing subversive about it and it wasn't uh, there wasn't an undercurrent of politicization of it it was it's just the truth and when you examine the truth after having years of not having seen the truth and in my life that certainly happened uh it's it can be a little shocking you know it can feel a little like oh my god am i really supposed to know that kind of thing or maybe i wish i didn't but we have truths in history i don't know if this is true or not but people used to say that in germany right they covered up the holocaust in their history books right they didn't talk about it we have a lot of things in our history we don't talk about and it's time to do that you know you got to be honest about history so subversive no honest probably another story to go in sort of a different direction <laughs> 
is one that was submitted to me by a student named Elena, who's from the class of 2008. To paraphrase, I, Elena, first met Mr. Philbeck on my first day of school back in August of 2004. And like most students, I was still sort of learning my way around the school. Lo and behold, just like anything else that could go wrong that day, could not get into her locker. After trying and trying and perhaps cursing up a storm, <laughs> she ran into you. Knowing the look of an exasperated freshman, you peered over and said, what's wrong? And she said, I can't get into my locker. Everything's going wrong. I just need to get my head on straight. And you said, here, I can put this somewhere safe. Let her into your room and put her bags and books behind your desk. Later on that day, you go on to actually run into her at lunch and lo and behold, not a single seat was available. So you sit down next to her and start chatting, music, movies, books. And very quickly, she starts to develop a bit of a, okay, this guy, a little strange, but not like all the other teachers, but a nice guy. As everything goes through, slowly getting through the day, you return to her at the end of the day saying, don't forget to pick up your stuff and quickly slip her a note with her locker and the correct combination that had apparently had been written down wrong. That was a legend of the amount of effort and looking out you kind of did for the average student. You know, that's a, wow, what a small thing that um, she remembers is, is the amazing part, I guess, because, uh, you know, helping students with lockers is something that you do all the time. Um, and I always ate in the cafeteria. You, you do big things and, and, and you do lots and lots of small things, you know, or people get credit when they do big things, you know. But to kids, um, you know, it's obvious from a story like that, that it's it's just showing like everyday caring that you might for a family member or a loved one, you know, that I can't see this person suffering and starting their school career. And really, like she was frustrated. She is getting angry. She's going to start to hate school already on her first day and she'll be in my class someday and I don't want her to hate school, you know. So, I mean, it's in some ways maybe it's self-serving, but uh, I remember what it's like to be a kid. I remember every, I remember things that most people don't remember, good or bad. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember little frustrations can really set you off, you know. And so the more you can sort of do as an adult to smooth life over for somebody who's like trying to find their way to where you might be, good for you. But, you know, we don't know what people go through. And, you know, that might have been the nicest thing ever happened in her life up to that point, as far as we know. Another thing that, at least to me, that always stood out about you is your willingness to get involved in student events. Uh, as we already talked about, you were a coach of the Bloomington, uh, assistant coach, excuse me, of the Bloomington North basketball team. But you also participated in several school musicals, uh, academic decathlon, all that sort of good stuff. 
And probably the one that actually stood out most in my mind was your performance as Officer Truffy <laughs> in, in the Bloomington High School North performance of West Side Story. Were you always like hoping at some point to have a chance to get out there and belt a few tunes? This is the greatest question <laughs> because um, I think yes, yes, and yes are answers to whatever it is that you said in there. Yeah, we all like, I never played a musical instrument, but I always wanted to be in a rock and roll band, right? School offered me so, I had so much freedom at that school, it's almost scary. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I, this opportunity came along, I said, sure, I, yeah, I'd love to be in this musical with the kids, with my son. Like, how cool is that? It was fabulous, you know. It, and the videotapes are still out there. Uh, I had so much fun, and I actually improvised a little. Boy, I don't know. I, okay, I'll tell. Uh, <laughs> my son was one of the one of the hoodlums, right? He's a gang member, and I'm walking off the stage as a cop, and so I take an extra moment, and I like do a double take, and I really peer in on him, like as if I recognize him, right? And then I wander off the stage. Well, the audience, knowing that that's my son, they think that's really funny. Um, the director, who was a teacher in our school, didn't think it was funny at all, and was really curt about it after the first night, and you know, not in the script okay i said okay and i did it every single night and the audience loved it every single night then she said i was upstaging the show but I, you know people are having fun let's have fun right but i love doing that kind of stuff you know if you go on youtube i've been announcing games and i've done this series called 84 feet of Philbeck where i walked with the kids and asked them um goofy questions about their likes dislikes lives there's a there's some that are just really precious i mean the kids are so great and so so fun on those mm -hmm. uh but yeah i'm kind of a ham uh chris cooper smith we talked about earlier he is in a fine local band the shack ups absolutely and chris called me one time a couple of years ago and he said hey we want to do sort of a 60s um, garage rock type show can you suggest some songs and i did and i went over to the rehearsal and they said hey do you want to like get in here and sing anything and i'm, I'm not a singer but they said well go ahead try it and, so then when they performed, they asked me to come perform with them. And it was like the highlight of my entire life. We performed at the Orbit Room um, with the Shack Ups and did like fantastic old songs. You know, it was, it was a blast. I, I'd love to do it again. My one night as a rock star. One thing that we sort of have touched on a few times is sort of the involvement of your son. Yeah. You have two sons, Nick and Ethan. Right. Nick is about what now 34? 33, yeah. 33, and Ethan is 31. 30, you're right. 30, okay. Oddly enough, you know, that sort of was my first exposure to you, seeing you at Ethan's jazz choir performances or across the baseball diamond in Little League. My team being coached by my father, Steve Ashkin, versus Phil Beck and uh, Ethan going at it. Were you an involvement first sort of parent or was it more like, I love these things. And so the fact that my kids are on the basketball team, on the baseball team, I just want to be more a part of it than before. I started doing it as a volunteer basketball coach at the boys club in Bloomington before I worked there, which is why they sort of offered me the program director job later. Uh, but um, 
I've always had an interest in, in volunteering and in working with kids and in coaching. So when my own kids came along, it just sort of made sense that if I had the experience, I had the knowledge. And um, I didn't want my kids to have a bad experience, nor any kid for that matter. So I decided that, you know, I would, I would like to get really involved. Be curious, explore, be involved with your community, listen to different perspectives, and look out for the little guy, Steve Philbeck. And love what you love. Don't worry about what other people say. Just love what you love. Love what you love. And I love interesting conversations with fantastic Bloomingtonians. Steve Philbeck. Thank you so much for being on Big Talk. And to all of our listeners, have a wonderful evening. 